Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Pixar Sciatica Podcast. Let's talk about physicians. They know a lot, but also one of the challenges is that there are so many physicians and doctors that you can see when it comes to managing a condition such as sciatica. Do you go to an orthopedist? Do you go to a neurologist? Do you go to a surgeon? There is a term that you may have come across is a physiatrist. What is that? And we're going to be able to answer that question specifically today with the guest, Dr. Nikhil Verna. Um, and he is an, uh, a physiatrist and also a spinal specialist as well. So he's kind enough to share his expertise and time with us today. So Dr. Verna, so good to see you. And thank you so much for being on today's show. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Yeah, so again, Dr. Verma from Columbus, Ohio, you know, really excited to help out and get the information about what a physiatrist is and how we can differently treat our patient population and help them out with their sciatic pain. So let's get right into it, Dr. Verma. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you're at today. Uh, yeah, I'll try to condense this down because like every story, it's a long story. Um, I was born and raised in uh, Marion, Ohio, just north of Columbus, Ohio. Went to Ohio State for undergrad. Uh, I went to St. George's University for medical school. It's a Caribbean school, which actually took me to uh, Europe or England for a year for training and then to Grenada, the island, uh, Caribbean island for a year. And then I did a lot of my rotations in Brooklyn, New York. I thought I wanted to do sports medicine. Um, I'm pretty active growing up. I love sports. I loved injury recovery. I loved how to rehab a, a person after an injury. Halfway through my medical school training, you kind of decide where you want to go and what field you want to go into. So I was still kind of full-blown on sports medicine. My roommate at the time said, hey, I'm doing this physical medicine rehabilitation uh, rotation. Why don't you come join me for a couple of weeks and see if you like it? And from day one, I realized that's what I wanted to do because um, it, was, it was all about and what we'll talk about here shortly was what, what physiatry does and what physical medicine rehabilitation doctors do. Um, so just to continue on, I finished my medical school. I did a year of internship in Michigan, went back to Brooklyn for my uh, residency. And then I went to Birmingham, Alabama for my fellowship for uh, advanced spine training. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite the journey. You went uh, to the to the pizza capital world, Brooklyn, New York, and then now in Ohio. I think Ohio has decent pizza as well, perhaps. Yeah, uh, not that great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what a cool journey to be able to, and it's cool to be able to say, like, once you stepped into your rotation, you're like, this is what I want to do. So let's get right into it. There's a lot of different doctors that patients can actually go to, uh, orthos, neuros, surgeons. And oftentimes, I remember having conversations with patients and they're like, okay, well, my orthopedist is sending me to a physiatrist. And they didn't really quite know what to expect and what that was. And I knew from my back end that physiatry is part of the physical medicine rehab, so PM&R, but that was pretty much the extent of my knowledge as well. So tell us a little bit more about what physiatry is. 
Uh, it's a serendipitous timing on this. My colleague just posted a meme on social media yesterday about if you're to ask a physiatrist what they do, you'll get 14 different answers. Um, and that's not necessarily to downplay that we don't know what we're doing. The fact is, it's such a wide field. And if we want to boil it down to the most simple terms, really, it's we care about function. We care about how we can get you from point A to point B, whether that be with exercise, physical therapy, whether that be with modalities, um, you know, heat, ice, electrical stamina, and that kind of stuff. Um, or does it mean we need medications or do we need assistive devices? We're kind of the uh, guardians of all that and overseeing all that as our colleagues in the physical therapy, occupational therapy, case management, and those worlds kind of work more hands-on with the patient. And then we're kind of the ones signing off, making sure that everything's up to date. We're not doing it using out-of-date modalities and uh, really just what other tools we can give to the patients. And so when it comes to a patient's sciatica journey, for the most part, they'll experience the pain and especially the way that the insurance world works right now, they often have to go to their general practitioner to ensure that their visits are covered, especially when they go to a specialist. When someone is dealing with sciatica pain, are you the first person to go to once the person, like once a patient sees their GP saying, I need a referral for sciatica pain? Um, where in the order do do pa patients usually see you? Are they like the you the first line of defense, or you've seen a couple doctors and then you go to physiatry? That's a fantastic question, uh, and it, this is gonna be a long winded answer. But I'm gonna answer it uh, efficiently. Um, I'm gonna start with this that exact question. Is my mentor uh, Brad Goodman in Birmingham, Alabama, my um, fellowship director? His opening lecture to all the fellows was: If you have a heart attack. You go see a cardiac doctor, you know, cardiologist. If you have a gastrointestinal, a stomach problem, you go see a gastroenterologist. There's no backologist. There's no spinologist. We have orthopedic spine. We have neurosurgery. But we don't necessarily have a backologist. Um, I would argue that physiatry um, would be the closest that we have to a backologist because we are more than often not operative. And we really wanted to try to stay away from medications and injections if we can. So it's kind of that realm is where we stick. Now, unfortunately, in the current medical system is patients don't have easy access to physiatry. They may not even know what that means. We get confused for psychiatry or podiatry or um, different realms. So PM&R doctor, physical medicine rehabilitation or physiatry, really, in my opinion, should be the first person that a patient goes sees when they have back pain. Unfortunately, our, our current and from there, we would say this is the physical therapist I believe is going to help you the best after going over some exercises in the office with them. And then we start seeing unfolding the picture of what else we need to unravel. Unfortunately, in the current model that we're at is we have back pain, we ignore it. Once we stop ignoring it because it's been too painful, then we go see our primary care doctor. They start you on, we'll say, a non steroidal anti inflammatory, maybe and a muscle relaxer, maybe give you a steroid pack. Then after that, you get an x-ray. Then they send you to physical therapy. Then they send you to MRI. Then you might go see a spine surgeon after that. And it's really skipping all the steps and the proper way. It's a lot of wasted resources because uh, quite often we shouldn't be starting medications that quickly. And the worst scenarios are when the patients are in so much pain that the doctor starts them on a long-term opioid for couple weeks. And it's like, well, it's not indicated for that. Get them out of the acute pain, get them to our office as soon as we can see them. And let's see what we can do to help them out.
That I'm so glad that you answered that. And it's really helpful because I 100% agree with everything that you said. And thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you guys are the experts in regards to, to movement, like overall function. And so, uh, and oftentimes people think, okay, they go to their GP and they're like, I got to go to an orthopedist. Like they're already having this thought of where they should go, probably because of the way the system is uh, designed, right? And, but but outside of the system, right? Like now, now we're, we're outside the system. Let's talk about like physiatry itself. Let's talk about sciatic pain. So, um, you're you're having a new patient coming in, and they're they're dealing with sciatic pain, or that's what the script says, or, or from what your colleagues are saying. What are some of the things that you look for specifically that help you determine uh, the the best plan of action? Fantastic question. Again. Uh, I, I will say that a lot of my patients dislike the amount of paperwork that they have to do when they come into my office. Um, and it's not because I'm trying to catch them or, or try to really frustrate them. Really, in realistic terms, is I'm trying to get as much information as I can in a small amount of time. And I want to know everything from their home status, how much they're working out, what their diet's like what their sleep patterns are like, um, what their stress levels are like, what they're, where they're working, is this a contributing factor? Are they smoking? Um, are they using alcohol? Are they using other drugs? And again, none of this for judgment, and it, it helps build this bigger picture because all this is super important. So when they can actually come to the appointment, we get them back into our exam room, and I can spend more time with them now, and I don't have to ask all these questions that might feel forced at that visit. And to try to encapsulate everything in a 15 minutes can be nearly impossible. So now I'm really focusing on the physical exam and what the patient is telling me. Does it hurt when I stand up? Does it hurt when I sit down? Does it hurt when I bend forward? And um, as you might know, you know, these are different indicators, but the patients might not know. Like we, we ask these specific questions for a specific reason. Um, then we also want to rule out other causes of the sciatic pain. Is it because you have a sacroiliac joint dysfunction, which can mimic sciatic pain? Is there another nerve that's being entrapped that can mimic sciatic nerve pain? There's another concept of, you know, is it a piriformis syndrome, which is a controversial term, depending on who you read, because that is where uh, the sciatic nerve gets entrapped under a muscle that is around your glute, your butt muscles, essentially. Um, is that the cause? And, you know, if you're treating the back and it's getting pinched lower down in the back, then those back exercises may not be the best option. So really, we're going through a thorough physical exam at this point, neurophysical exam, really checking the nerves, sensation, gait pattern, um, special tests for the sacroiliac joint and special tests for the piriformis. Um, and that's just a, hey, this is just a physical exam. Then we start discussing a plan. This episode is brought to you by the Patient Advocate Program. Are you tired of not having support between your rehab sessions? Introducing the Patient Advocate Program. We're focused on your recovery and we're offering you 24-7 access to a doctorate of physical therapy. Stop waiting in line to be seen and stop spending hours doing long exercise programs. Imagine being able to get all of your care delivered straight to your phone. Best of all, it's affordable. We believe everyone deserves top-notch relief without breaking the bank. So why wait? Take control of your health today and visit PT Patient Advocate advocate.com and book your free call with our experts. I'm so amazed by your, the, the one, the breadth of knowledge that you have, especially having to go through the schooling you went through, but also your ability to how fast you got, like you, you and your colleagues are able to operate because I think what a lot of patients 
misinterpret is that maybe you have like a 15 minute visit with your physician and they only think that that 15 minute visit is, is all that happens. It's like, Oh, I only had a chance to spend 15 minutes. But what I do really appreciate for uh, what you described was where you had patients really put their information on the sheet. And I remember even just doing grand rounds at the hospital. It was that we would have the information taken from one of the support staff and then it gets related on over to you. So there's there's many different steps that happen outside of the actual patient treatment room that you actually get a lot of information. So by the time you actually step into the office, you're already having some of these hypotheses, these suspicions of what you think could be going on. And then you go through the physical exam and that actually helps you narrow down in regards to what is the issue and what is the plan. So I'm always really amazed by how fast you guys are able to do it because you're seeing so many patients a day and you're getting bombarded with so much information. So being able to have that uh, filter and the ability to be able to tap into identify, okay, what are some of those things so quickly? It's a very beneficial skill. And then it's also a reassurance to patients that it's okay. The 15 minutes you spent with the physician, they also got a whole bunch of information from everyone else in the staff and all the information you filled out. So I think that's uh, something that, you know, to, to, to bring it out. And so uh, when we were getting ourselves ready and prepared for this interview, one of the things that you want to talk about is the concept of regenerative medicine. And regenerative medicine uh, has been growing over the past, we'll say, five to 10 years, maybe in 10 to 15 years. And so a lot of people are still not quite sure because it's still relatively new. So tell us a little bit more about the, the concept of what regenerative medicine is. And then if someone is dealing with sciatica, what are some of the examples of treatments for sciatic or even just trying to re- uh, treat like radiculopathies in general? Excellent. Uh, let me just uh, backtrack just slightly. Um, a couple other things you're talking about is that whole patient process. And I think we, we us as physicians take it for granted sometimes is because we are looking at these notes before the patient comes in and get a synopsis. Um, so then when we go in, like you said, there is an inkling of, I think it might be this, I think it might be this. And then one thing that I do that I've been drained into my training and all my colleagues trainings nowadays is we want to look at the actual images ourselves, our own x-rays, our own MRIs. We don't want to go off a uh, radiologist report. Um, so that's square one for any plan. If we don't look at those MRI images or the x-ray images before, I'm very unlikely to suggest any interventional procedures at that time. We'll just use our physical exam and history for our non-interventional um, medications, physical therapy, different modalities of physical therapy, et cetera. So that yeah, move, yeah, yeah. So moving on to regenerative medicine, as you said, it's a very, very new field. Um, it's been going on for a while, but the emergence of evidence is coming out. Uh, our, our biggest barrier right now is the lack of data because we can't do randomized controlled trials with patients own products, uh, blood products or stem cells. Um, and I'm going to give the big caveat overall with when we say regenerative medicine, I'm using air quotes because it's not really regenerative in the same sense of regenerating tissue. Now there might be some properties that do establish that, but really what we are, we're getting growth factors and signaling cells to bring in all the proper healing cells to remodel more than it is regenerate. When I use the word stem cells, which we'll get into a little bit more, um, it's really patient-derived cells. And they're not really stem cells. They're more of signaling cells that have a robust signaling mechanism to the body to activate different pathways. 
for cells to go into a different, we'll say if you have arthritis, it might differentiate to help those bone cells specifically. Um, there are products that you can get off the shelf that are labeled as exosomes and peptides and um, Wharton's jelly and umbilical cord. All of these things are not FDA approved for anything in to use in the body. So if there is a clinic out there that's using it and charging seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000 for these things, you better run away because that clinic's going to get shut down. I'm not saying it's it doesn't work because it might, but our, there's no FDA clearances for these, for this, any joint or back issues. So that's the big caveat to start off. We kind of have a, two things that we can look at. Um, you know, where is your pain coming from and what are your goals? We are either treating the disc. So actually, let's backtrack. I want you to kind of rephrase the question with that knowledge and see how we can go because uh, there can be different treatments for different people. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll break it down into two segments. Um, I think number one is the options. I think you briefly talked about it, but um, when it comes to regenerative medicine, the only thing that I've come into contact with so far uh, is, is PRP. But I know that regenerative medicine is a little bigger. So I would just be interested to see like, what are the other options? You have PRP. What are the other options that are out there? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so let's talk about non-invasive approaches first, and then we'll kind of build our way up. So if we're talking about non-invasive uh, approaches, we have things like um, infrared or laser therapies that might be effective. Data is a little bit lacking. It's a little lagging behind and based off this. These have been around for hundreds of years, but it might be a potentiation of increasing blood flow or increasing energy in, into that area that can activate certain cells and pathways. Um, in the petri dishes, you know, where we do a lot of lab science, these lights do activate cells in a certain sense. So that's where the laser comes into play. Um, the step up from there is shockwave therapy, where you, we are using radial shockwaves to generate waves into the tissue, can penetrate a little bit deeper, and it does a micro damage to the area that stimulates a healing response. If we cut ourselves, we heal because we have a healing response. So it's a similar concept without actually inflicting a lot of damage. This can be slightly uncomfortable, typically not that painful. But if it is painful, it's likely the whoever is the provider is not using appropriately. So just something to, to be, keep in mind. So the next thing up in there, uh, the next step up we can consider, uh, and this is usually the, the next step, but not using isolation, is prolotherapy or uh, D5W injections, where if we can see a nerve is getting entrapped under some scar tissue or under that piriformis muscle that we talked about, or around the cluneal nerve area that's causing our low back pain, sciatic pain, uh, we can use an ultrasound guided mechanism to unentrap that nerve and rebalance what that nerve pathway from the periphery, the extent of your body up to the brain and what that signaling is. And it can help open up that nerve so it can free, freely flow instead of being entrapped and squeezed down like a hose. Um, there are some people that use these prolotherapy injections as epidural injections. So an epidural injection is where we take a needle close to the spinal cord, not in the spinal cord, but around the nerves, and we bathe the nerves with different medications or different solutions to help decrease pain and hopefully um, 
give a better experience for the patient so they can get up, move around, and do what they need to do. Uh, now we're talking about the next step up is we'll probably talk about uh, PRP, um, platelet-rich plasma. It's a bone. It's a blood-derived product from our own bodies. We will extract anywhere from 60 to 120, maybe 180 cc's of blood. It can be a lot of blood. Um, and we spin it down into maybe 7 to 10 cc's of concentrated growth factors. These, this uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma, has a lot of platelets in it. And these platelets are activating factors. Now, we found that if we treat these platelet-rich plasma and actually burst open the platelet cells, it, it forms what we call a plasma lysate. And that's actually really, really beneficial for nerves. It doesn't give the same painful effect that some PRP injections can give. Um, and also, the, it decreases our risk for uh, blood clots as well and strokes and that kind of stuff. And then the other option for, and there's a lot we can do with PRP and adding factors, taking factors out, what our concentrations are. It's, it's real science in itself. And that's kind of why we're lacking data because there's no individualized one pill fits all solution. So that's another caveat. If you, you're seeing a physician that treats the same condition with the same blood draw and the same spin, they don't, they're not up to date with the current research. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The next site, I, I group these together. Um, there's a little bit of debate to group these together, but uh, we have bone marrow aspirated concentrate cells, which are these quote unquote stem cells I talked about, these signaling cells, which we uh, aspirate some bone marrow and we centrifuge that down, spin it down and take off, throw off the parts we don't need keep the parts we do need and inject those around the surrounding structures that may be causing the pain. Um, similarly, we have micronized fat um, where we extract fat products and not a significant amount of fat, but a very like a small amount of fat that we would take out of somebody and use those cells after a little bit of processing that's FDA approved by the US currently. And um, getting that into a sterile solution and then re-injecting that into the body to help a healing cascade. Wow. So, so many options. And I'm so glad that you ranked that or not ranked them, but listed them in order from non-invasive to invasive in regards to the, like even just administering, which then brings me to the second part of the question, uh, which I guess is a two-part question. So we'll go, we'll go second question part A, which is going to be, well, probably ties in in regards to what are the criteria that you look for in determining should we go the, the non-invasive route versus the more invasive route? Um, yeah, we'll start off with that. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Typically, if it's an acute herniation, um, we may want to stay away from anything because a lot of these therapies actually entice a little bit of inflammation. And the whole purpose of healing is because we're enticing a little inf inflammation. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there that do it for acute. Um, it can be beneficial, but that's one thing to look at. And then honestly, the biggest thing, it, it comes down to the skill set of the provider and financial resources of the patient. 
um, that the least invasive, non-invasive things can be more financially friendly versus you can imagine if we're having to extract bone marrow, the kits cost expensive and it takes a lot of time and expertise. So that can be pretty cost prohibitive for some patients. Um, and then there's everything in between kind of. For my practice, typically what I start out with is a laser therapy to help decrease inflammation. Um, and then I do a combination of prolotherapy with PRP plasma lysate for uh, specifically radiculopathy or sciatica. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And thank you so much for sharing. I think it's a, it is important for, uh, for people to understand like what, what goes through your head in regards to the decision-making process. Like the patients don't necessarily, like we, the patients don't necessarily need to know everything, but I think it is important to be able to see, you know, what is your thought process in determining that, which then moves on to the second part of the question in regards to, okay, well, once you've determined, say the, the intervention, um, one of these options, what are some things that you look for in regards to how, how do you end up determining the tissue that is actually irritated in the first place? Because we know that the sciatic nerve can be irritated up in the spine, which could be arthritis, like various different things, arthritis, facet, disc herniations, but then we go lower down the chain and it's like possibly the piriformis or the glutes. Um, what are some of the, the characteristics that you look for that helps you figure out what are these sources of pain? This is the area that I want to focus on specifically. It's so fantastic. And this is why uh, I'm so passionate about the physical exam when the patient comes in, because what they might be thinking of as a sciatic pain might become from that SI joint in reality. And if we can tease that out, then I'm going to treat the proper tissue based off my physical exam, number one. That's always first and foremost. Number two is the results on x-rays and MRIs. If it was up to me uh, in the current medical world, I would treat all these structures that I'm about to name. But unfortunately, we can't. We can only treat one, maybe two structures at a time. But when I have a patient that has, we'll say, a sciatic nerve from a herniated disc that's pushing on the nerve, causing the pain down the leg. So we know there's at least one theory from the study called ABC of degenerative spine that the disc actually is what deteriorates and goes first. So my opinion would be to, if that's go what goes first, why don't we treat that first as well? So we might do something like an intradiscal regenerative medicine protocol, where we inject into the disc, maybe around the annulus fibers that contain the disc material inside. Um, then we get the epidural space where that nerve is getting irritated and pinched because it's still sensitive. Um, it's sensitized by the release of peptides and histamines and all these other things. That's not important for this topic, but that nervous sensitize. So we use our agenda medicine around this to desensitize those nerves. But we know when we have a herniated disc, those aren't the only things that matter at the end of the day, because we have potentially muscle damage in that area. So I'll look on the MRI if there's fatty infiltrate or fibrous infiltrate in the multifidi muscles. Uh, we look into the ligaments of the intraspinous ligaments, as well as the intratransverse process ligaments um, and intratransversi muscles. Um, we look in the SI joint, not only in the joint, but the ligaments around it, the sacroiliac jo joints. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we look into at the end of the day. And every patient is specific. And we that's why we make a specific protocol for each one. 
And I really appreciate it when you said that, I mean, you have the physical exam, but it's also like how the patient responds to treatment as well. Um, it's cool that, I mean, the, and, and this is one of the, the great things, yet also somewhat frustrating things about treating something like sciatica is that there are so many structures that can be involved where having to just focus on one specific structure, if that doesn't work, we can, the good news is we can move on to the next thing, right? But in some cases, it can take some time for us to figure out what is the structure that's actually causing this irritation. And yeah. so, yeah. I, I, we, we utilize uh, quite often just a, a basic diagnostic lidocaine injection in these same areas to see if there's a percentage of pain that comes comes down. Typically, we're not trying to inject more than two places in one visit because then you get overlapping effects. But if I inject the sciatic nerve underneath the piriformis muscle and that took care of all the pain, then I have some idea that the pain can be lowered down. So just some thoughts. Yeah, this is, this is huge. I, I think uh, a lot of people really lose hope after trying like maybe one or two sessions of just trying to figure something out. But I mean, there, there's an endless amount of reasons as to why the pain is coming from the first place and being able to just go from one to the other. Uh, just, I mean, one, the possibilities start to kind of get filled out based on the physical exam and the subjective. But knowing that there are other options that we can do, I think is particularly useful. So um, let's talk about the, the these visits and visits and the, the actual interventions, right? So we have, I think it's like one, two, three, four, maybe I think about six to seven interventions that you have from a regenerative medicine standpoint. Um, say, for example, a patient comes in and you evaluate them. It turns out they're actually a candidate for the regenerative medicine interventions. Let's talk about uh, the the frequency in regards to how often you're seeing these patients and over how long of a period of time. What's that like? Yeah, so we'll just kind of walk in from uh, give an example of a patient that we've had recently without any names or identifying factors. So they call in and say, hey, I want to, I want to be seen for regenerative medicine. So first we need to talk about, is this going to be covered by insurance or not? So since regenerative medicine currently is not covered by any insurances, there might be some hold off insurances by private contractors that do cover it. Um, but for the general spot, it's not covered by insurance. So the visit that we discuss it, typically we cannot charge as a visit that we would charge insurance companies. So um, that's the big thing. So I, in that first visit, we know that there's a built-in price that I have for my consult fees. And then what I do is I use that for the patients, whatever that money is, use it for the procedure fee as well. So they're not paying twice. It's kind of, we'll say $100, $100 goes towards their procedure price as well. Um, it's an hour-long consult. We sit down and talk about all their past. We talk about the imaging and what I would like to treat and how I'd like to treat it um, and how many steps it might take. Typically, I want to start my patients on a laser therapy before the procedure, and um, that gets inclusive in the price. And then maybe one or two visits. We then visit date comes because I don't want to do the procedure that day. There are many, many reasons why, but... I'm just going to list name a few of them here. One, I want to make sure your diet is as clean as it can be before we draw your blood and process it down. Whatever you're putting in your body is going to be produced into those blood cells or platelet and growth factors. We want them to be the best that they can be. We want to make sure that you're not taking chronically non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications or you haven't had any steroid injections or any aspirin or blood thinners recently because that can disrupt how those platelets activate and respond have our body respond. 
Um, I want to make sure they're well hydrated. I want to make sure they're sleeping well. And I want to make sure their stress levels are down. Um, all these things are very important to me. I actually have a whole series of a lecture that I give to all my patients. And I go over it with them. So procedure day, they come in and that's the smallest part on the scale of pre-procedure. Pre-procedure, <laughs> uh, procedure is a little bit smaller and then post-procedure. Procedure is the easiest part in my opinion, because we get the process, we spin it down, we get everything sterile, we inject into the right locations. Then we have a two-week follow-up. 90% of the time at the two-week follow-up, the patient's like, I can't believe I wasted all this money. I'm not seeing any benefits. And I, I tell the patients, you're going to say this to me, and just trust me, it's going to take time. Because as we get inflamed, or if we injure something, it takes time for it to get healed. I'm always going to go back to if we cut ourselves, you'll see yourself maybe seven to 10 days later, like it's healed, but it's still kind of achy and sore and painful. That's that intermediate proliferation phase of the cells. So we're not quite to our full body self yet. It's really the work after eight weeks to three months when we start seeing things really start to develop into a stronger scaffold and stronger anti-inflammatory. So that's where the post have, and that's the longest portion. Um, it's, it's vital for every single one of these patients to get into a specific workout, physical therapy, chiropractic regimen for their condition and what we treated. Um, otherwise, yes, you probably wasted a lot of money. Um, not saying it can't work without it, but that is the session that matters. And I still make sure they're sticking to a good diet, staying hydrated because recovery matters in these things. And I'm glad that you brought that up in regards to having to stick with the physical therapy chiropractic program. I think uh, it was interesting because early, early in my days, uh, communicating with, um, say, some other regenerative docs, like as, as a practice, um, they, they would inject it and they're like, okay, well, you have to not do anything for six weeks. And so I, I find it so intriguing because one, whenever it's, I, I want to follow the, the physician's recommendations, right? And so it's good to hear that you want them to follow through with some sort of activity. I would probably be safe to assume just based off of these guidelines is, all right, well, if we were to, you know, provide the injection, we're not looking at going into the extremes of motion, probably focusing on building up strength, hip flexibility, and allowing patients to actually move and I, I said this in a previous episode um, with, with the surgeon, is you physicians, you doctors, um, you're the ones who are doing some of like the real big body work. Like, you know, if you're injecting, if you're putting an injection in, it's kind of like you're, you're, uh, you're getting the screws reinflating the air in the tires, but it's, it's also important for the patient who's in the car to, to act responsibly. Right. And so our jobs as physical therapists and um, you can't say much for chiropractors. I'm not one, but I know as a physical therapist, I have to need, I need to teach these people how to drive with their new set of wheels. Right. You have to make sure that you are not, you know, blasting through the stop sign or, you know, hitting a corner at like 80 miles an hour to be able to drive your car and move responsibly with the changes that, you know, a, a doctor such as yourself is implementing. Yeah. 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 All right. So, I mean, this is all always really helpful. So we have a pre-visit, visit, and then we have the post-visit, being able to have pretty much the entire team together to make sure that everything is working uh, at the same time so that patients can actually feel a lot better as well. Um, and yeah, you answered my question in regards to be able to move and exercise with physical therapy. So if we're talking about regenerative medicine, right, you said earlier in this episode that uh, the, it, it, uh, 
regenerative medicine, regenerative medicine is an umbrella. Um, and you had, you listed your, I think six to seven interventions, but then you said that there are some clinics that provide peptides and all these other things that aren't FDA. Clear. Is that what you said? Um, or what They're were you saying FDA about clear, but not FDA approved. Oh, not so, FDA approved. Okay. So you can't yeah. really use them unless you're in clinical trials with the, we'll say university or tertiary, uh, clinical. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so when it comes to patients who are listening to this and they're thinking, all right, I, I think I want to go into and look into regenerative medicine. What are some of the steps or questions that should they should be asking their, their doctors? What should they be looking online? Um, what are some considerations that they need to take in? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, and th this comes from my own bias, and I can admit that because um, obviously I've been trained in these kind of things. So I think first, first and foremost is what is your training? What is your level of training? Um, I've had a nurse practitioner tell me she's had five years experience of injections with regenerative medicine, so she knows everything. Um, I've been doing what I've been doing for over eight years, um, and I'm still on the uprise of learning what are the best techniques, what are the best things. So um, the first and foremost is is that amount of training not saying that nurse practitioners can't do this i would just probably towards trend towards a, a physician that has training in interventions um, if ultrasound there's a means of choice then so be it whenever we're dealing with the spine ultrasound does not tend to be enough so we always want to use ultrasound with fluoroscopy so you want to make sure that someone is using a fluoroscopy machine which is a big c-shaped x-ray machine to make sure we're not going into any vessels or any into the spinal cord or anything like that itself so those are the two you know the base basis like lowest level you also don't want someone that just went to a, a weekend course to learn how to do these injections you want someone that actually has been doing it for several years went to a fellowship and is fellowship trained in these things uh, you don't want you want someone that actually knows the data and knows the difference. You know, there's a lot of people out there. It's very easy to buy a machine and say, "Hey, I offer PRP," but you really want to know what the credentials are. And a lot of these conferences now give you certificates that we post on our websites um, or can show our patients. Like, this is my uh, merit. This is why I believe that I can treat you better than some of these other places. The other, and this is kind of hard because. Google reviews can be very challenging to gauge, but I mean, I think it does come back to Google reviews of how were you treated? How was your experience? Um, did anything feel off for you? I think all of these things do matter as well uh, when we're looking into who we're going to go for for this. Um, and at the end of the day, the individuals that are taking this field to the next level, uh, they go to the same three, four, five conferences or the part of the same three, four, five committees. As we get these committees and conferences and these names out there, I think we should have a better resource database for who to go to. And that that will really help us tell the patients, hey, this is someone that's qualified. Um, and, and there are places that are trying to make some of this board certification for in regenerative medicine, which is great, but not everyone has access to that. So it makes a ton of sense. And with patients who are going to say, um, who are currently under care of a physician, um, is it, is it okay? Like, do you think it's okay to just bring it up to their physician, like the physician they're working with and like, Hey, what are your thoughts on regenerative medicine? Maybe take a look at it. Like, um, in regards to regenerative medicine, is this something where say like the rest of the medical community, like what's that? I mean, I highly respect it, but I don't know what that say, you know, people who aren't in regenerative medicine, what's the general consensus on that? 
Yeah. Uh, so I've been kind of interested in this for, we'll say, eight, nine years, seven, eight years now. Um, and I was an early-ish adopter. It's still not very well liked because the there's a lack of data. And sometimes physicians don't have time to dive into the paper itself. So they say there's not enough data. Uh, and that's the biggest barrier. So it really comes down to someone that has an open mind and understands the science behind it and either recommend a trustworthy trustworthy physician themselves or a tr trustworthy practitioner themselves, or if they offer themselves to make sure that they're going and doing the proper legwork and training to understand it. Um, I encourage the patients to ask about it, but don't get swept up in the bigger regenerative medicine practices in the area that sometimes just want your money and don't necessarily care about your outcomes. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, you want to be able to focus on, I mean, ultimately, the reason why you listeners are on this show is the fact that you want answers to the pain that you're suffering. So the last thing that you need to do is go to a place that kind of just sucks your resources dry. And so, um, you know, doctors like Dr. Burma um, are, are here to help you. And so which brings me to the the, the, the last question of the, of the day is that, you know, for the listeners out there, they're like, okay, I want to, I want to um, take a deep dive into regenerative medicine. And uh, you have your, your clinic out in Ohio. What's the best way for people to get in contact with your clinic? Yeah. Um, our website is essentialsportsspine.com. You can also look up Nick Verma MD in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, my Instagram is uh, DRNV Sports Spine. My Twitter is uh, same DR as in Dr. N as in Nancy V as Victor Sports Spine. Um, you know, I'm on these platforms and constantly trying to give out some good messages and um, maybe put a, some tongue in chief. I have a big disdain for the current medical system. Um, patients not getting the care they want. So I actually created my own YouTube channel called Things I Didn't Learn in Med School, where I kind of talk a little bit about the current medical economy, as well as some tips and tricks that we can do to help ourselves. So um, hopefully uh, you'll be able to have that access on for the everyone to reach out to us. Listeners, if you didn't get a chance to write that down, I'm actually going to put be putting all the links to the show notes. So absolutely take a look. Uh, Dr. Verma, this was such a cool learning experience. Um, I'm really appreciative of your time and I'm sure the listeners uh, have gotten some really good information. So thank you so much. All right. Appreciate your time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got some help from today's podcast. And for more info, check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com. Have a fantastic and pain-free day. No patient-therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. We are not providing medical advice and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. 
Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.